Good morning. Hope y'all had a good 4th of July. So um, we're going to keep talking about the, the parables. We're going to talk about the parables for a few weeks. And last week we, we just kind of introduced it. So today we're going to get into our first, our first parable. Then we're going to talk about the parable of the sower. So when we talk about the parable of the sower, remember what a parable is. We talked about what a parable was last week. Can anybody tell me what a parable is? Remember what we said a parable was? There you go. A real life story where a few basic truths are told. So it's not like a fable because it doesn't have flying animals. And it is allegorical, but maybe not. Can't necessarily assign meaning to everything in the parable. But it's a real life story from which a few basic truths are drawn. And we want to come to the parables with this. Uh, we talked about having ears to hear. We want to have ears to hear what Jesus is saying. And we talked about how that was kind of like having faith. It was similar to faith. And so uh, Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So you could use a lot of different definitions for ears to hear or for faith, but what, what we want to do is we want to believe that Jesus is telling us the truth, and we want to believe that He means good for us. So uh, the example of a t having a teenage child, you want your child to believe in you, and believe that you actually want good for them and that you're not trying to keep them from doing fun things just for the sake of it. You want them to believe in what you're saying and you want them to believe that you mean good for them. And he said, uh, last week Jesus said in the Matthew 13 that he's revealing secrets that have been hidden since basically the beginning of time. So he's telling these stories one of the things that he's doing is he's revealing secrets that have been held since the beginning of time. So we have an amazing opportunity to hear from Jesus' own mouth about these secrets uh, from the beginning of time. So the parable of the sower is in uh, Matthew 13. It's also in a couple of other, it's a couple of other books uh, as well. And so what happened in chapter 12 in chapter 12, he has conflict with the Pharisees. He, uh, that's when his disciples picked grain on the Sabbath. And then he also uh, healed a man with a withered hand. And so he started this conflict with the Pharisees. People have started to ask the question, maybe he is the, the Messiah. The Pharisees are plotting to destroy him. And there's more and more of a crowd following Jesus. And this crowd is getting bigger. He, he then heals a deaf, mute man who's possessed by a demon. This is where the Pharisees claim that he cast out demons because he is a demon, basically. He's the chief of demons. And so at the end, the crowd is so large that, quote, on that same day, he has to get in a boat to get away from the crowd. So the crowd is on the bank. And he gets in a boat, and the boat, that allows him to address the whole crowd. So he's got this massive crowd uh, that has gathered, 
And you can imagine why. They're not necessarily there because they are, have become Jesus' followers. It's more of a novelty at this point. Like something interesting is happening and lots of people are going to see. And so let's go see what's going on. So this crowd has gathered and now he tells the parable of the sower in chapter 13. So let's read that. <clears throat> so this is Matthew 13. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seeds that fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So what's unique about this passage is, so the question is, well, what does that mean? And a few verses later, Jesus says, this is what it means. So Romans is actually like that. If you have questions about things, when you read Romans, you'll find Paul asking the same question that you have rhetorically and then answering the question. So does that mean God is not fair? How can God hold us accountable for our actions? Those kind of things. Paul just answers those questions directly. So that's uh, what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, this is what it means. So then you skip down to verse 18. He's explaining this to the disciples. So he doesn't explain this to the crowd. He explains this to the disciples. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. But he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, in another thirty. So Jesus explains this uh, passage, and what we're going to do is just try to figure out what exactly is he talking about. Um, okay, so who is the sower? Did y'all know Picasso? I'm not a, an art uh, critic, shocker, you know. Actually painted a picture called the sower. May or may not have anything to do with this parable, but seems to uh, fit. Who is the sower in the story? God. Can anybody else be the sower? Jesus. Any? The Holy Spirit. This is exactly what I did with Anna yesterday. Uh, so God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Who else? Yourself, right? The disciples. Us could sometimes be the sower. Whoever is casting out the gospel could also be the sower. Um, who is the audience? Who is he talking to? The crowd, 
right? And like I just said, the crowd is made up of, this is a cross section of like the community. So I would say that his audience here is kind of the world. It's not necessarily directed, you know, he's not just telling the disciples, he's not just telling a small group of his followers. He's, he's saying this to the crowd. Um, and there are two, two main points to the parable. It tells us how or why different people respond differently to the gospel, which is still kind of a mystery. And it invites us to examine ourselves to say what kind of soul we are. So the question of <clears throat> there are people who respond and people who don't respond to the gospel. Why do people not respond? Holy Spirit's not pricking them. You know, I could explain, and uh, Les and Brian are great at explaining this kind of thing. You could explain the mechanics of kind of how that works. But ultimately, I would say, it's just kind of a mystery. You know, what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? He meets Nicodemus, you know, in, at night, and he says... Uh, you must be born again to be saved. And Nicodemus says, well, how is that possible? And then in that same interaction, he says, the Spirit's like the wind. You, it blows. You don't know where it came from or where it goes. So that's a little bit unsatisfying. But that's the explanation. So, um, you know, it's hard to understand. You, you see in the same family, you know, people have radically different responses to the exactly the same upbringing, exactly the same environment. And that can be one of the hardest things to understand. Uh, you're just like, why, how does this, you know, you meet a really faithful adult and their parents have no faith at all, you know, and then you meet a really faithful family and they have children that have completely abandoned the faith. So it's, that's a really hard thing. It's nothing easy about that. And it's a reality that happens, and ultimately, uh, it's just one of those things that's in God's hands and not ours. And um, so on the one hand, we should not pat ourselves on the back for how we responded, right? And also should give us some humility in, uh, about why we're here. But at the same time, and at the same time, we should also spread the gospel to everybody because we don't know how people are going to respond. Martin Lloyd Joint, Martin, I can't say that, Martin Lloyd Jones says so our job to get it from our mouths to their ears, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to get it from their ears to their heart. Um, so, what is the seed? So, the sower is God, the sower could also be us. What is the seed? God's word, right? It's the message of God's word, the, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom. And what is the soul? People's hearts, right? It's the different responses. It's people's hearts and how they respond. And that's the way Tim Keller describes it. He describes it in terms of uh, different types of hearts. So you have the hard heart. <clears throat> The, uh, so there were no, unfortunately there were no tractors back in the day, right, in this time. So there were paths, if you were walking from one place to another, you might walk through a field and you would walk on the path. I grew up around cotton fields 
and it was always drilled into me, don't ever get into the man's cotton, right? Don't ever drive your three-wheeler through the cotton. You have to stay on the road, right? So that same thing, there were paths, and those paths, you can imagine, over time, were just getting beaten down. They would be really hard. And uh, then you had the cultivated ground, so you may be walking on the path, throwing the seed out, and you have uh, rocky ground. You know, we don't have rocks here. Has anybody ever, if you've lived in other places, you're familiar with rocks, right? You could dig like a 500-foot hole, and you would not hit a rock in uh, where we're standing. Certainly not where I grew up in the Delta. Other places, I lived in a, uh, at Alpine Camp for several years, and you could put a, you could go like a foot and you would hit rock. You wouldn't just hit a little rock, like everything was a giant rock. So um, there's rocky ground and then you grow up <clears throat> around, there's, there's good ground that also has thorns in it. So the hard heart is like the person described in Romans one, you grow not to just practice sin to approve of sin, but to approve of sin. And if you think about this, this, this is sad, but it's actually 100% true. You know, there are billions of people, or certainly millions and millions of people, that they live their whole lives, they don't give Jesus a second thought. They, maybe it's because of where they grew up, maybe it's not, but Jesus is just not a part of their life at all. So if this message is to the whole world, I think that's kind of what... Um, Jesus is talking about with the hard heart. Also, what does he say? He says, <clears throat> um, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Say, well, now what now? You know, <laughs> the evil one. One thing you have to get used to in Jesus' stories, Satan and demons and angels are very common uh, characters, and they're actually doing things in the world. So that makes us really uncomfortable. We don't you know, we don't really act like that's a real thing. But in the stories that Jesus tells, it's a very common uh, factor. So the shallow heart is the rocky ground. So the rocky ground, you have a little bit of soil, and so it springs right up, kind of like something growing on your driveway, you know. But it doesn't have any root, so that when the sun comes, it's washed away. This is someone that does actually hear the gospel and respond, but then there's no... There's nothing, uh, there's nothing actually there. We had a, we had a uh, kind of a weekend retreat thing that, that spread through my high school when I was in high school, and basically everybody went to this. And there are some of my close friends that would say, like, this is the moment in their life when their faith became real. So I'm not knocking the retreat, so don't hear me wrong. Uh, that I could name multiple friends where this was a significant moment. But everybody had a response to it. Everybody. You, you can't go to this thing without having a response to it. And uh, lots of people, you know, a week later, it just kind of came and went. And so that's what I think of with the, with the shallow heart, with the shallow soul, the rocky soul, is that there's kind of an immediate response, but it's got no root. And then the strangled heart <clears throat> is the one that grows up and is choked out by thorns, by the cares of the world, you might also read other, other uh, translations say the troubles of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Um, and it proves unfruitful. So I have a yard full of weeds. I don't know. I'm sure most people in my neighborhood have these beautiful yards. 
It looked like you could just like take a nap in the grass, you know. My, my, my yard is all weeds. So in the spring, it looks really bad. There's like three different kinds of flowers blooming, you know, and uh, I'm real self-conscious about it. But this time of year, right, after some rain and after I mow it, it looks just like everybody else's yard. It's just green. And so that kind of happens with the weeds. It's hard to tell what's a weed and what's not a weed sometimes. And uh, that's what's going on here. The weeds blend in and eventually they choke out. They choke out what's uh, growing. I have a little piece of property outside of town. One of my favorite things to do is to find a tree, like a good looking oak tree, and pull the thorns out of it. And uh, some of these thorns are so tight in the tree that you have to hook a chain to it and pull it out like a vehicle. And it's very gratifying when you, when you pull it out and it's like 30 feet long comes out of the tree. And then after a year, you've kind of freed the tree from the vines and it's this beautiful tree. That's what the thorns do. Um, so, and then you have the open heart and the evidence of an open heart is that you uh, bear fruit. So these, these uh, returns on the crops, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold, will be totally unheard of. So that's like off the charts. It's not realistic. It's 10-fold uh, would be a fantastic year in this time. So, so it's an amazing return on the crop. And the question is just, do we have open hearts? Do we want to have open hearts? You know, I can't tell you, okay, you got to go have an open heart, right? I can't make that happen. But the question is just, do you want to have an open heart? Is that, do you want to have ears to hear? Do you want to be receptive? Um, so that's the four different types of hearts. And we said last week we're going to look for an encouragement and look for a warning in each one of these stories. So what's the encouragement? The first encouragement, and I, I don't think you can overemphasize this, is to think about how encouraging it is that this is the way he told the story. He could have told the story, like I said last week, like the three little pigs, and the person that succeeded was the person that was the most prepared and worked the hardest and did the most things. You know, it could have been four people traveled to a far off place, and the one that was more prepared and more diligent, you know, made it, and the other three didn't make it because they didn't know what they were doing. Or it could be four people running a race and but that's not the way he tells it all. Just the way he tells the story is very encouraging because the emphasis is what is the sower doing? You know, Les said it very well last week when he, when he told the story of running across the frozen creek. It's, the question is not the quality of your faith, but it's what you have faith in. And so it's what is the sower doing? This is very encouraging the way he told the story. And I would suggest a lot of other religions, it's the exact opposite. It's going to be do A, B, C, D, E to get to the goal. And that is not at all what uh, Jesus is saying. The other encouragement <clears throat> I would say is for, if you're in this room this morning, you're at Sunday school in July, right? So you're not the hard ground. If he's throwing this out to the world, the, the fact that you're actually here, you're, you're closer to the disciples in the boat than the hard ground. And I think that's true. I don't mean to make anybody feel self-righteous, but I do think that's true if you look at the world. Um, so you're not the hard ground. 
but also it should be really encouraging that God would plant you in the ground in a way that you would not be blown away or washed away by whatever's going on in the world. So that next slide is a picture. Can anybody tell what that is? It's hard to tell. So that's an oak tree, right? That's a leaf on, the le on my left. So that's out, uh, I have a little field, and I went out and found like 20 little baby oak trees that were growing that I had been mowing. And I put a flag by them so I don't mow them anymore. Which is kind of like the parable of the weeds, which we're not really going to talk about, that he says right after this, which is he spares the weeds because if he destroyed the weeds, it would destroy the crop as well. But that little oak tree, you know, if I leave it alone in 25 years, is going to be huge. And the grass is going to be an afterthought, right? Right now, the grass is the same size, you know. Um, it doesn't seem much different. But we know what that tree can turn into. And what Jesus is saying is that he can plant you in the ground like an oak tree. And even though it feels like the weeds and everything around you is just as bigger than you, scarier than you, you know, he can plant you in the ground so that no matter what happens in your life, you will not be uprooted, you will not wash away. And that should be very encouraging uh, to us. That's an unbelievable promise that he would make to us. You know, it says, in this world you will have trouble or you will have tribulation, but do not fear because I have what? Overcome the world. So it's not that you're not going to have tribulation or trouble. It's just that Jesus has overcome the world. Now that's an unbelievable promise that we should at least be curious to say, how is that really something that Jesus is offering? That I can put my faith in him, he will plant me in himself in a way that whatever happens in my life, I will not be uprooted, I will not be separated, I will not be blown away. So that's a promise that Jesus is making. Similar to, you know, you build your house on the rock versus build your house on the sand. When the hurricane hit uh, around Panama City, I don't know if you remember this picture, I don't have a picture of it, but there was one particular place where the worst part hit and every house was blown away except for one. And there was like one house that was sitting there and everything else was destroyed. And that's what Jesus is offering to you. It's like he will root you in himself so that no matter what the storm brings, you will not be blown away. That should at least be intriguing to us that we would say, how is that possible? I want to find out more about that. So that's an encouragement. An encouragement to us. Um, and there's also a warning here. The basic reality is that there are people that don't respond to the gospel. I mean, it's not a comfortable thing for me to think about, you know, but it's just a reality. I mean, it just is. So how do we deal with that? And what, what, is, uh, what is Jesus saying? So I would say that the strangled heart is kind of where we are um, in this room, what we should be we're examining ourselves to say what kind of soul are we the strangled heart is what we should pay the most attention to so what does he say um, are the two things that are like the thorns that are going to strangle you what does he say he says the cares of the world or the troubles of the world and the deceitfulness of riches now if you went to 
someone in this time, a Jew, and you said, what are your two biggest problems? What are the two biggest things that threaten you? What would it be? The Romans, for sure. Who, what else would it be? The Gentiles, probably, you know. Um, it's amazing uh, that Jesus would say the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, that he would tell this story 2,000 years ago, and it would be just as applicable to us, if not more so, than it is to the audience he's talking to. He doesn't say, you know, tyranny and something else. He doesn't say liberal politicians. You know, he says deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world. And that's just as applicable to, to us as it is uh, to them. So I think generally speaking, since it also says troubles of the world, he's talking about negative things. I think the cares of the world can also be positive things, but these are just some you know, examples of the cares of the world. As Mike Tyson says, <clears throat> everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And if you live long enough, you're gonna get punched in the face. You're gonna have a child in the hospital. You're going to have, your marriage is going to blow up. You're, you know, you're going to lose your job. You're going to have something traumatic happen to you. Maybe lots of traumatic things happen to you. And unfortunately, that is the way the broken world that we live in is. And the question is, when that happens, how do we respond? Does it just, does it make us angry at God and push us away from God? Or do we draw closer to God knowing that, He's the rock that we can rely on. How do we react to those things? Um, you know, what scare, what's a little scary to me is when I'm going through the worst times, it seems like that's when I'm reaching out to God the most, which is pretty scary because I don't want more of the worst times. <laughs> it's when things are going good is when I'm just kind of on cruise control. So... Um, you also could have good things. You know, it could be good things. You could be, I mean, there's a million good things. Success at work, the well-being of your kids, the whatever. Those are not bad things. But those are cares of the world that can kind of overwhelm you as well. And then you have the deceitfulness of riches. Um, this one, I think, I mean, this one is really kind of getting into our business in 2023, uh, it is for me. The deceitfulness of riches, um, and this is where I think about this. This chart right here that just shows an arrow up, that to me is what our society is all about, the society that we live in right now. The, not every uh, group of human beings is like this, but that's just what our society is. And there's just something about us that we just do that to everything. I mentioned uh, last week, until I like to talk about, I like to talk about my granddad and my dad, but my granddad played football at Mississippi State in the 20s. And it was totally volunteer. There was no, it, was, it would be kind of like a club team for soccer or something at Ole Miss now. And uh, he said the only thing you got was a clean towel every week. That was the benefit of playing football at Mississippi State. As he said, a towel, you know. And he said by the end of the week, it was so nasty that it would stand up on its end. And then he'd give you a new towel. Think about what college football is now. It's like a multi, multi-billion dollar business. There's 
thousands of people that that's their whole job. It's TV everywhere. I mean, there's something about our society. We do that to everything. We just, everything we touch, that's what we do. We make it more efficient, more profitable, more popular. It's like, that's what we do. I went and ate lunch with my dad last Sunday and I was asking him about his hunting camp and he said, Mr. Sherrod, when he was a kid, let them hunt on that land for free. They just had to keep up the roads. And now if you wanted to go hunt in that same land, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that. And we just do that to everything that we touch. And there's something about the deceitfulness of riches that is, is just central to what we do. And I'm caught up, I mean, I'm the chief hypocrite in this. We all get caught up on it, in it. We've got to be realistic about it. Jesus said this is very dangerous. This is something that we need to be aware of. It's extremely dangerous. So let's look at some encounters that Jesus had with rich people. Encounters that Jesus had with rich people. So who are some rich people that Jesus encountered? Rich young ruler, that's a good one. We're going to talk about that one. Anybody else? Zacchaeus, y'all are just hitting it out of the park. That's the other one we're going to talk about. Who else? The centurion. The centurion, they healed, uh, Jesus healed his daughter. There's some others, but those are the three that we'll talk about. So the rich young ruler is, for somebody like me that lives in Oxford, this is like the most terrifying story in the Bible. If it's not for you, then I don't think you're really paying attention to it. And let me also, I'm going to qualify that. I have been completely broke before. I've been completely broke. And anytime we had this conversation, it was very frustrating. Because I was like, all of these people can do whatever they want. They, and I'm over here broke. And uh, we lived with Anna's parents for several years. She potty trained two of our kids, living with her parents, which is why she can say whatever she wants about my t-shirts, you know. Uh, and you know, you go to church, I remember going to church in Jackson, I meet somebody new, they say, what do they ask me? The two questions you always ask when you meet somebody. Where do you live? What do you do, right? Where do you live? Well, I live in a nice house in a great neighborhood. It's just not my house, right? Uh, it, and it just kind of, there's shame associated with that. It's like that's the worst thing, is walking in and being poor, you know? And I've, I've come to church. Uh, when we moved to Oxford, I didn't have a job, 2009. You walk in, you're like, hey, what do you do? You know? Well, I mean, yeah. You know, I'm in between things, you know. We need to be sensitive to that. And I'm sensitive to that. And I've been right where you are if you're in the room now and you're thinking that. And it's, you know, I think it's a fair question that we should ask at Christ Press. Can you come to church here and be completely broke? Or do you have to hide that? Do you have to hide it? Um, so the rich young ruler comes along and says, he falls at Jesus' feet and says, what should I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus basically says, obey the Ten Commandments. And he says, well, I've done that. Right? So that's a real problem. <laughs> and then he says, okay, uh, well, give away everything that you own and to the poor. And he, he goes home sad. And he goes home sad because he's very wealthy. And I think I would go home sad from that meeting. I don't want to go home to Anna and say, well, Anna, I had an interesting meeting today. And we're giving everything we own away. Right? And then Peter says something interesting. 
after that interaction. First they say, well, how could anybody enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus talks about how hard it is for the wealthy to go into heaven. And they ask him again, say that again? And he's like, no, really. It's hard for the wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And um, Peter says this, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So it's not just an eternal reward, it's actually a reward in this life. But all the disciples were martyred. Not all, I don't know if all of them were. Many of them were martyred. They certainly didn't live a wealthy life. The rich young ruler went home and did whatever he wanted. So, Jesus is saying actually in this life, He's giving you something that's better than riches, that's better than life itself. You know? Remember, He's telling us the truth, and He wants what's best for us. That's really hard to, uh, to think about. What if we were in China right now, we were meeting in the basement of somebody's house because our pastor was in jail and one of our church leaders had just lost his job. How encouraging would it be to read that? You'd be like, this is amazing. We've given up everything. It's hard for us though because I will say this, I don't think my faith has ever been a problem for me in my life, in, in the community. It, maybe it has, I, I haven't noticed. It hasn't kept me from doing anything, you know. So that's a, that's a, can actually be more dangerous than living in a hostile environment. Okay, so Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was rich. We would all hate Zacchaeus. Everybody in here would hate Zacchaeus. And um, it's, he's kind of like a, a mob boss or something because he collects taxes for the Romans but he collects more than is due and he keeps the difference. So he's the guy that comes into your business and says, what kind of week have you had? And looks in your cash register and just takes money from you, okay? So we hate this person. And when Jesus goes to his house, everybody's grumbling about it, which is exactly what we would do. What in the world? This is like the worst guy in town. But Zacchaeus did something interesting. Does anybody know what Zacchaeus did in response to his meeting Jesus and becoming a follower of Jesus. What did Zacchaeus do? He paid everybody back. He didn't just pay them back. Everybody he defrauded, he paid them back four times more. He also gave 50% of his wealth to the poor. So that was Zacchaeus' response. Jesus did not tell Zacchaeus, at least it's not in the passage, that he has to give away everything he owns. Uh, what about the centurion? The centurion, the story of the centurion, his daughter is sick. And um, people come to Jesus and say, you need to help him. Does anybody know why the Jews wanted him to help the centurion? Why did they like the centurion? He helped them build a synagogue. Okay, so his, there's something going on with the centurion. He helped them build a synagogue. He's a, he's a graceful leader as opposed to a tyrant. And that, he's the one that says, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. I tell people to go do this and this, and they do it. You can just say, and, and my daughter will be healed. And, and uh, she is. Some people would say, I don't think we know this for sure, but this is kind of interesting. 
There's a centurion that meets Peter after Peter has the vision and acts of the uh, different kinds of animals, basically where you're saying you go to the Gentiles. Do y'all remember that with the sheet coming out from heaven? And the first person he meets is a centurion who's a God-fearing man who was always generous. And his family is like the first Gentile convert family that's talked about in Acts. Some people think it may be the same centurion. I don't think we know. It, you know, I kind of like to think maybe it is, you know. So, <clears throat> the question is, you know, what are we like? How do we react to the deceitfulness of riches? I mean, uh, this really stuck out to me, which is why I remember it. Uh, John Sartell, I was in elementary school, and I went to Memphis with a friend of mine, and we went to church, and he was talking about this, and he held up a Mont Blanc pen that's like $150. And he was talking about how ridiculous it is to have a $150 pen. But then he said, this is the reason I remember it. He said, I didn't have to borrow the pen. It's my pen. Right? And that's the way I feel right now. I mean, I'm going to New York City on Thursday. So I'm right there with you on, on all this, you know. Uh, it's just something that we have to really evaluate and think about. How's the deceitfulness of riches in our lives? Because it's very dangerous. What is the antidote to the deceitfulness of riches? There is an antidote. We just talked about it with the centurion and with Zacchaeus. Generosity, right? You give money away. And so I'll just encourage you. And look, I made a pledge when we were in Jackson to a building fund. It wasn't even that much. And I didn't pay it because I was broke. So I know what it feels like when people start talking about giving away money and you're like, you don't know the half of it. I owe everybody in town money, you know? So I get that. But it doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have, we should be giving money away. And that is what protects us from the deceitfulness of riches. And uh, if that's not a part of your life, I would strongly encourage you to pray and think about how you can make that more part of your life. Because I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you got a job you shouldn't have gotten, or you got a client, and you're like, how did I get this client? You know? God does that. You know, that is, God does that in our lives. Now, that's really hard when things go wrong. And you think, what is God, why is God doing this to me? But God gives us the things that we have, and we should give a portion uh, back to Him. So 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. There's a bunch of passages about, about this, but this is the cheerful, cheerful giver. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So let's be cheerful givers. Ultimately, we can't do that on our own. We have to be, uh, the divine gardener has got to work on us and give us a heart of flesh. As it says in Ezekiel 36, 
Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So that's the promise that God makes to us, that he will grow us into an oak tree and uh, beware the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. And uh, so I hope that's encouraging to you. Anybody got any comments? We got just like a minute or two. Okay. Let me pray for us. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. Give your money and your time. And, you know, a consistent, you know, it, you, you want to give consistently. You want it to be a regular part of your life. Um, and again, you have to remember what Jesus is saying. We believe that what he's saying is true and that he wants what's good for us. And that's why he's telling us that. So um, I saw Dave Ramsey once in Jackson, and he pulled people up, volunteers out of the audience, and he gave a, he pulled out ten hundred dollar bills, and he gave one of them a thousand dollars, and he said, "Now you give him a hundred dollars." And the point he's making is like everything we have comes from God. So let's be faithful and and uh, try to be cheerful givers, which is not easy. So. Okay, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for this passage. I pray that uh, we would have ears to hear this morning, that you would make us cheerful, giver, cheerful givers. Protect us from uh, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and uh, just help us to love you and serve you. We thank you that you want good for us, that you are a loving Father, and that you take care of us. And I pray now that our worship uh, to you would be pleasing to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.